What number is this, Chip? Episode 80. Ken Mills interviews Peter Mills, no relation, Sarah and Melanie take over the control room, and more. <laughs> okay, no, I mean, don't get excited, man. It's because I'm short, I say. You're listening to Zilch, a monkey's podcast. Podfather, yoo-hoo, come out, come out, wherever you are. Hey, 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 hang on, there's, there's, there's a note on the table, right next to that plate of cookies. Okay. Hang on. Okay. Uh, dear Melanie and Sarah, I had to run over to the UK branch of the Zilch Clubhouse to interview Peter Mills, author of The Monkeys, Head, and the Sixties. No, we are not related. Please introduce the show, do news updates, read the reviews sitting on the table, and then transfer the listeners over to Studio 7A. After the interview, you should tell Zilch Nation about the neat episode you two are working on about Monkey's guest appearances. Spoiler alert, Ken. Spoiler alert. Okay, back to your monkeying around. Sincerely yours, Ken. Uh, P.S. Don't eat the cookies. Don't eat the cookies? Don't eat the cookies. Oh, he's no fun. Okay, well, let's go ahead and get started on the news. What's going on in the monkeys world, Melanie? Well, Mickey had a solo show last night in St. Charles, Illinois. Uh, the first one that had one of those uh, big deal meet and greets afterwards. So I think that went off very well. I saw lots of people posting photographs. Um, I understand the show went very well, and uh, I also hear that they've added me and Magdalena to the set list. Oh, you're singing it with Coco? Yeah, Coco's singing the lead, and Mickey's still singing the high harmony. And also, uh, we're going to have a full list of upcoming Mickey solo shows on the uh, show notes. Wonderful, yes. And we've got that and everything that has either one of Jody Ritson's meet and greets or a Zilch Nation pre-show or post-show meetup. All of those are noted in that list as well. In addition to Mickey's shenanigans, there was a new Cersei Link album coming out. Uh, she announced it the other day on their most recent live stream. Pre-sale is going to start February 20th at CerseiLink.com and uh, I'm given to understand that there's going to be some cool shirts and other swag that they're going to be uh, giving to the folks who order on pre-sale. And I have to say, if you've never been to one of Cersei Link's concerts, you really need to go. And there's no excuse because they stream them both through Concert Window, uh, that's at ConcertWindow.com, and now they're available through Facebook Live on Christian's Facebook page. So they are at either place, depending on where, what plays nicest with your computer. And it's just fun because there's a chat going and there are regulars and there's all kinds of in-jokes that go on back and forth. And 
And sometimes they debut new stuff. They actually debuted three new songs from the forthcoming album. And they also showed us their new video for a song called Under the Sycamore Tree. I don't want to give anything away, but I think it might be my favorite Cersei Link video now. And it's just a really powerful watch. And I think you guys are going to like it a lot. Cool. Okay, cool. Well, I think that was all the news. Um, curious, what kind of cookies are those? Uh, hang on. Looks like they're oatmeal raisin. Mm, I love oatmeal raisin. Uh, nope, 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 nope. Ken said not to eat them. Mm-hmm. Even though he left us to record, we will be good. I'll move the plate across the table out of your reach. Thank you. Thank You're you. Welcome. Okay. Be strong. Be strong. Okay, uh, I think it's time to jump into the monkey's mailbag. Both feet in first. Always. Box 9847. <laughs> okay, and it's time for our monkey's mailbag. We have two reviews this week, both of which come from the UK. The first one is titled, appropriately enough, Zilch Podcast, and it is by Chris the Cabbie. Five-star rating. Chris says, so great to have this monkey's podcast. Have been a fan since the 60s, and I still am as I drive my black cab in London, England. Thank you. Looking forward to some more. Oh, man. Thank you, Chris. It's been too long since I've been in London. I'm going to have to come back, and uh, who knows? Maybe I can get you to give us a lift from the airport. That sounds wonderful. Maybe he'll turn on some of his passengers to the Zilch podcast. Oh, that would be brilliant. Yes. (laughs) Okay, well, this one says, favorite podcast, favorite spelled with a U, because it's from England, by Monkey Dell, rating five stars. Recently, in a long and involved conversation with myself, I discovered that for some strange reason, all of my favorite TV shows made their debut in 1966. Yes, Star Trek, Batman, and the Monkees all first appeared in that magic year of 66. Now, 50 years later, people are still talking about those shows. And with the Zilch podcast, it's great to discuss those wonderful Monkees TV episodes and the incredible wealth of Monkees music still coming out today. My lunch breaks are spent once a month listening to the Zilch podcast, and it's something I look forward to. Keep it up, guys. It's great. Well, thank you so much, Monkey Dale. It's always nice to hear someone who's in it for the TV show. Yay! (laughs) (laughs) I should have read that one so you'd get to to hear that, but yes. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I I love, uh, I I mean, I, I don't. It's hard for me to have a favorite part of the show, but I really do love the color cast commentaries and and all the stuff that we we have going on. And one of the things that we're really hoping to do this year in 2017 is spend more time focusing on the TV show. But we'll kind of get to that in a bit. And then was there anything else we needed to cover or can we go ahead and hand things over to Ken? Yeah, let's go ahead and hand it over to Ken Mills and Peter Mills. No relation. Over in Studio 7A. Sarah, keep your hands away from the cookies. You're no fun. Thank you for calling the Zilch Hotline. Your call is important to us and will be answered as soon as possible. You are the first caller. 
Please hold. Thank you for calling the Zilch Hotline. This is Carl, your Zilch Hotline operator. How many? Oh, hi. Yeah, yeah. Who would you like to speak with? It's Sarah from Zilch. I'm supposed to connect to Ken in the studio? Sure, no problem. Here we go. Thanks. Oh. Hi, friends. Ralph Williams, one of the world's largest. And uh, I'd like a glass of uh, cold gravy with a hair in it, please. <laughs> I'm defending our bridges in the world. Head. 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 This is Peter Mills. I'm the author of the book The Monkey's Head and the Sixties, and you're listening to Zilch, a podcast full of monkeys. And today on Zilch, we welcome author Peter Mills of The Monkeys, Head and the Sixties, an excellent book that we recommend quite highly here. Peter, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Ken. It's great to be here. It's, it's great that you joined us today on the Zilch Hotline. It is, it is fantastic that you're here. I cannot recommend this book highly enough. Well, that's very kind of you. I'm, I'm very, very pleased. Um, that you found something of interest in it. It's not just of interest. It is just, it's chock full of information about a period in the monkey's history that sometimes gets overlooked. Like if you watch almost any documentary or you read almost any article, it seems like there was an audition, they didn't play their own instruments, and then headquarters happened, and then they broke up. Mm -hmm. You fill in that gap. Yeah, I mean, that that was one of the reasons really um, behind um, even beginning thinking about writing the book. Mm -hmm. I mean, I I teach at a university over here and I've used um, the monkeys and head in my teaching for for a number of years. And it just became kind of clear to me the longer, you know, the, 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 the more I was using it, the more times I saw the film and helping the students, you know, we're studying the film together. That this is a kind of a remarkable piece of cinema in its own right, but also how it kind of fit into the the whole monkey story, you know, and, and how it kind of uh, referenced back into what had happened to them so quickly, you know, like just within a couple of years before, and how it also kind of pointed forward to what would happen next, and you know, the future of pop music, not just there personal kind of futures so there's all these things going on and then of course you've got the sociological stuff uh yeah exactly as you say you know you go looking then for information you go looking then for articles or stuff that's been written about the film often there'd be a page or two or it would just kind of be glossed over or they talk a little bit about um the poor poise song or something like that and then it would quickly be you know and then they broke up and then these other things happened so I wrote the book partly to address the absence of, you know, a proper study of it, but partly also because 
you know, I think it is absolutely brilliant. I think it's an extraordinary document of its time, but also which one floats free of all the things you might expect of a groovy movie, you know, from 1968. You know, it, it's kind of cliche-free at the same time. So all, all those things were in there. But I should also say that when I was when I was a kid, I found, when I first started collecting Monkey's Records when I was a kid in the 70s, I found a copy of the, the Head soundtrack album, just, you know, in a, in a second-hand shop. Uh-huh. And um, I'd how, never even heard of the movie. How old were you when you found the Head album? I was 14 at that stage. Wow. I'd already seen, you know, the films that it's easy to see, the pop films that it was easy to see, Hard Day's Night and Help and so on. Uh-huh. And I was already a fan of the monkeys, but I had no idea that they they'd made a movie. So this was absolutely fascinating to me. I was actually looking for a copy of Headquarters because I'd heard that was you know a really special album, which of course it is. So I was looking for that, and I thought, oh, there's a misprint on this sleeve. Mm. That's what I thought originally. I thought, well, this is it, but they've they've got the title wrong. And then I flipped it over, and obviously, you know, the famous uh, back cover with all the information about the movie. And it was about another 15 years, actually, before I saw the, finally saw the film. Wow. So when I did see the film, and this is probably the experience of lots of people listening to this, maybe, one of the things that you notice is that the, the, the kind of sound collage effects that you get on the album, uh-huh. they kind of pop up unexpectedly, don't they, throughout yes. the film. All of a sudden, they'll be in the middle of the scene and say, oh, my God, that, that's gravy. Yeah. Or, you know, that's the, you know, supernatural or, you know, whatever it is. So you get those little audio treats as you go through, you know, and I'm a great advocate of the film, but I'm also a great advocate of the album. I think the album stands alone as a kind of work of art in itself. It is absolutely amazing. And it's strange that now you see people actually doing this sort of thing when soundtracks are made, where they will include bits of dialogue. But prior to this, that wasn't really happening all that much. And it seems like when they were working on the head album, that it was an experimental thing to do. Yeah. I mean, if you think about the the albums, the soundtrack albums for the Beatles films, uh-huh. they were kind of in disguise, weren't they? I mean, they really, they just look like ordinary Beatles albums, if there is such a thing. Uh-huh. But you, you know what I mean? It doesn't necessarily trumpet sound album soundtrack. Right. They're just sort of clean, you know, they're just 14 tracks like, like you know, Beatles for Sale was or With the Beatles was. Uh-huh. But hey, you're absolutely right. Head was really kind of uh, pioneering in that sense. Um, kind of getting that sound collage and the tracks kind of fading into each other. And it was Jack Nicholson, I think, uh-huh. who kind of coordinated the album. And there's some there's some kind of humour in there in the edits and the, how certain tracks kind of, there's like crash edits, aren't they? Uh-huh. You know, one track to another. And it's a real sort of uh, sound movie, actually. Yeah, it is. Absolutely album. is. Sounds like a lot of supernatural baloney to me. Supernatural, perhaps. Baloney, perhaps not. Like I said, your book begins where a lot of books end. I can tell you that for myself, my experience being a teenager in the 70s and trying to even find out information about the monkeys, I'd go to the local library and I'd find a book and they might have a list of albums, right? And I had the first four albums 
and so <laughs> to me I didn't know about head I didn't know mm. about instant replay or any of this stuff no, no. and every once in a while you'd see something where it would say soundtrack to a movie and I'm like they made a movie and it, like I said your book begins where a lot of other things end and it was so nice to read your book and you start at the beginning of the monkey story and there's a bit of a preamble and, and, and as it goes through it's it's great to see how they survived the breakup of the monkeys and that's something that I really enjoyed seeing in your book there's a quote by Mickey Dolenz as a matter of fact do you know the quote I'm speaking about where he talks about the the, the roller coaster and absolutely you know, nothing that's the one have, would one. you like to read that for us yeah sure sure nothing had prepared me for the aftermath of something like the monkeys experience and there really wasn't anything that could. Maybe I intuitively knew that the fall was going to come, and I was trying like hell to avoid it. But you can't avoid it. You mustn't avoid it. If you have the nerve, you should actually use the downward momentum to gather up speed, like a roller coaster, in order to get back on top. That's tremendous advice on everything in life. It is. I mean, that's wisdom, isn't it, actually? That's wisdom born out of extraordinary experience mm -hmm. that you couldn't actually prepare yourself for. And I think I think the the chaotic surfaces that people see in head when they first watch the film, absolutely, totally, hundred percent, reasonably, because that's how I felt when I first saw it. Mm -hmm. You know, I had the little landmarks that we were talking about of the the songs and the familiar bits of dialogue and so on. You know, they were like little markers that you could find your way forward by. Um, but I think that the the, the kind of, as I say, the, the sort of chaotic. Um, upper surfaces of the movie are a kind of response to everything that happened. You know, this kind of extraordinary kind of rocket ride they'd been on in the previous two years uh -huh. when they've gone from nothing to being kings of the world and you know, I mean that that's, it's kind of unprecedented so in that way I, I would put the monkeys in with people like Elvis and the Beatles and Dylan, you know, people who were the first of a certain type of popular music performer the, the first people to go through that process and that's one of the reasons why I think that they're, they're so important I mean they're, they're important really important culturally obviously we love them because we love the music and we love the TV show and we love them actually but they are also extremely culturally significant aside from the emotional response that we have towards them I think so anyway could you walk our listeners through your book, like like walk through the chapters and kind of how the story develops via the chapter? Well, as as he sort of um, intimated a little bit earlier, Ken, uh, it starts with a chapter which I, I just called Prehistory, mm -hmm. the road to 1334 North Beechwood Drive, just to sort of point out the, and to remind actually uh, everybody of the very unusual circumstances that brought these four individuals together. Because obviously, you know, being cast for a TV show, you don't necessarily think, I don't suppose, that that's going to um, stay with you the rest of your life. Uh -huh. You know, So that that's kind of unusual, I suppose. So the first chapter is about that, the, the four um, individual lives, very different, but, you know, they, they kind of... The kind of the coalescence, if you like, of, of the, the, the group in uh, Los Angeles. Uh, and then the second chapter 
is a study of the TV series, sort of selected episodes, really, I guess, and sort of certain moments which seem to me particularly interesting or kind of revealing or just extremely enjoyable, wow. actually. There's a little little study of monkeys get out more dirt and uh, the Frodis caper. And, you know, kind of looking closely at them, the, the, those episodes. It's... You know, you can see the, the monkeys get out more dirt. That was kind of around the time of them asserting control over their own music. Mm-hmm. And it's got the, the girl I knew somewhere in it, which was the kind of the, the freedom anthem, if you like, I, I think. And then, of course, the Frodis caper famously, the sort of surreal finale. So there's stuff in there about the program, TV program. Then chapter three is one I, I quite like, actually, about the liveness of the monkeys. Called that chapter Monkeys on Tour, uh-huh. um, taking the title, of course, from the last episode of the first season. Uh-huh. And that is about the, the, the history of the monkeys as a live act. One thing that, that always annoys me, still, actually, and I'm sure it annoys plenty of people that are listening to this, uh-huh is when you hear the old stuff about, oh, the monkeys, weren't they the ones who didn't play their own instruments? Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. Um, but, of course, when you start looking into the history of the group, you see that almost from day one, you know, live appearances were on the cards. And within three months of the, the, the first season being launched, um, they were on the road. Yeah, absolutely. And when they were promoting the first episode, right at the beginning of the first season, of course, the famous train ride, from uh, Clarksville, it was Clarksville for a day, wasn't it, the little town. Uh-huh. Um, what were they doing on the train? They were playing live. So that chapter, Monkeys on Tour, is a kind of exploration of the live career of the monkeys, the original kind of iteration of the monkeys, from that train ride right through to the last, almost kind of mythic and rumoured gigs that... Uh, Davy and Mickey uh, did together in the uh, early 1970. Um, you know, which which flyers kind of sometimes emerge for these things, don't they? But nobody can quite work out when and where they happened. So um, that's the third one, and then chapter four, which uh, is called "Listen to the Band." That's about the music of the monkeys. Now, the original manuscript of this book actually was at least twice as long, maybe maybe two and a bit times as long. So one of the things that kind of uh, got cut back quite a lot when we were kind of editing and trying to make it into a kind of a reasonable size uh, was this chapter on the music. Uh-huh. But what I was very keen that we should retain were the studies of what seemed to me to be either historically important songs, such as The Girl I Knew Somewhere, or ones which demonstrated kind of the, the, you know, the individual characteristics of the group members. So there's sort of analysis of the girl I knew somewhere, the whole of Headquarters and the whole of Pisces Aquarius, and then half a dozen other tracks, which is maybe slightly off the beaten path, not to listeners of the Zilch podcast, I wouldn't have thought, but to the general listener. So things like Just a Game, Tapioca Tundra, and a little section which I quite like on all the um, all Peter Talk songs that kind of have emerged during the the Rhino archival uh-huh. searches, you know, which were unknown at the time. 
and um, and Daydream Believer. That's that's the Davy song I look at, which of course you know the whole world knows and loves. And that's the end of chapter four. The good or bad news, depending on your point of view, <laughs> is that the rest of the book is about head one way and another. Uh-huh. So there's a kind of uh, little analysis, chapter five, called What is Head? Which, of course, was the slogan, or one of the slogans that was used to to advertise the film. Uh Um, How the film fits in with, but also wildly differs from traditions of the sorts of films that, you know, pop groups were making Uh at the time, because it, it was certainly radical in that sense. And then chapter six... Uh, which I call Production 8888, which um, I'm sure everybody knows was Head's original, the, that that was the, the production number that it had at the studio. And that is, um, brace yourselves, just shy of 100 pages, a kind of scene-by-scene analysis of the movie. And then, if you've got any breath left at all, <laughs> Chapter 7, uh, which I've called Can You Dig It?, is about the soundtrack album. And then right at the end there, chapter eight, um, chapter I called Aftermath, which is about, well, you can guess, you know, what happened after the movie, uh-huh. 33 and a third, Pete leaving, uh, instant replay, Monkeys present, Michael leaving, changes, what happened in the early 70s, um, and then coming up to the present day through, you know, the, the reunions, the impact of Rhino, on the monkey's career and indeed the monkey's uh, impact on Rhino's viability uh-huh. um, as a, a record label and a business, um, right through to um, Pool It and Just Us and so on. I'm sure everybody listening to this knows the story, so we kind of follow it through. And then a little conclusion, which I call There's a Good Time Coming On, yeah. which looks at the 1997 TV special which I don't believe has been written about before particularly. And I was I was fortunate that I was able to have a new Monkeys album to write about while I was doing this, uh, which is Good Times, of course. So that was a very, very, I was very fortunate there. Some great stuff at the end. There's a couple of appendices, an essay on uh, the Monkeys and Head and the culture that surrounded that time by a guy called Bill Drummond, mm-hmm. whose name might be somewhat obscure, I suppose, but um, he was part of a very famous group in the early, late 80s and early 90s called the KLF, and they had a number of hits, certainly in, in the UK, but I also think they had some success in uh, the US, mm-hmm. particularly with a song called Justified and Ancient, yes, which was sung by Tammy Wynette. I think it was one of the last vocals she ever did. Yes. And... He, I just kind of guessed actually that he might be interested in the monkeys and head, just from other things that I've noticed that he'd done and said. And sure enough, I sent him an email, and he very, very kindly uh, and enthusiastically wrote this piece for me. Uh, and then appendix two is uh, a transcription, actually, of an interview with somebody whose name is probably more familiar uh, to monkey fans, um, Bill Inglot who is the sort of the, the audio archivist who did all the, you know, kind of searching and the finding and the digitizing of the um, various archives that all this kind of obscure monkey's material was languishing in until Rhino shone a light on it. 
so I guess that's it, really. That's 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 the kind of they're the bare bones of it, really. Three hundred fifty pages worth of of that kind of stuff. You mentioned the the soundtrack to Head. Do you have a particular favorite track that you'd like us to play right now? How how does one choose? Well, the Porpoise song is is an exquisite diaphanous beauty of a thing. So why don't we have that? Here's a live version of the monkeys doing the porpoise song. Thank you. 
one thinks of Head, how does it stack up to other f rock films? Like, for example, you've, you've talked about Hard Day's Night and Help and so on and so forth. Where does this rank in the pantheon of rock and roll films? Mm, well, that's interesting because uh, Bob Rafelson, in an interview when he was, he was, he was talking about Head, because um, for a long time, of course, as we know, it was it was it was more of a rumor than a movie you could actually go and see. And he was reminiscing that as the seventies progressed, uh -huh. he would start getting requests from people. One of whom he, he recalled was Mick Jagger, um, asking you know for a print of the movie for a long, long time, and not really be reminded of any other rock movie that you'd seen. Uh -huh. In some ways, uh, it's it's absolutely right to to say, well, you know, it's kind of unprecedented, and it it's a new kind of filmmaking. Actually, I think that's what I'd say about it. Just in the same way that that pop and rock music was a new way of communicating, a new way of using the forms of popular culture uh -huh. to say something different. You know in this generation in this loving time uh -huh. you know it was a it was a period where possibilities and boundaries seemed well not non-existent but remote uh, at the very least you know that you could try anything at all and what is remarkable about head i suppose uh, one of the <laughs> millions of things that's remarkable about it is that it was a mainstream movie funded by columbia pictures but it was it was entirely countercultural. It went out of its way to not deliver what you might anticipate of a monkey's movie, uh -huh. even to the point of showing them playing live. You know, Rafelson gave them the opportunity there just to make that little point. And of course, he under he kind of deliberately pulls the rug out from under them at the end by having you know the riot with the, the mannequins and so on, mm -hmm. which the fans don't seem to mind. They don't seem to mind that you know these, these are, are dummies. So again, there's a little point being made um, there. But the film, in fact, this is something that Bill Drummond said: if you put head next to the Woodstock movie mm -hmm. and said which is the most truthful about that period and which has got the most to say to the present moment about that period he said that head would win every time and i think he was absolutely right i think it's precisely because it didn't observe the conventions of its own time uh -huh. that it's become sort of timeless you know it's it's the most extraordinary thing um and just a little thing that the uh, observation that I, I like to make you see and hear the monkeys playing live in that film you don't see and hear the Beatles playing live in either of their early movies at all. That's just sort of an interesting little historical anomaly when you think about, you know, the things that people say about the Beatles and the things that people say about the Monkees. I mean, obviously saw them and heard them live in Let It Be, but that was a couple of years after Head, of course. Yeah, you know, you bring up a really interesting point. I was speaking to a friend not too long ago, and they had never seen Hard Day's Night. So when they first saw Hard Day's Night, they were blown away by how authentic the Beatles playing their own instruments, if you will, or, sure. or lip-syncing to yeah. their own yeah. song. 
how amazing that was. And you bring up a, a great point that yes, that, that they definitely knew exactly what they were doing. It was 100% competency, but the the it was the monkeys that actually played live. We didn't see yeah. that from the Beatles until Let It Be. Yeah, absolutely. performance i mean the the circle sky sequence is one of the the bits that i show to my students kind of independent we always have a screening every year of the film so you know they watch the whole thing but kind of in advance of it in class i use the circle sky sequence and they're always absolutely knocked out by it because it's such a fantastic it's primal but it's also Febrile, you know, it's it's just a, just a fantastic rock racket that they make, uh-huh. and you know, they they it never fails to to sort of surprise and and delight the students, and of course the visuals that go with it. Yeah, there's some extraordinary photography in there, you know, kind of the the, the creation of the, the the visual spectacle as well as the kind of this hard pile driving sound. It's like Husker Du or somebody, you know, it's uh-huh. just like bam 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 incredible noise but then of course intercut with that you've got the the sort of the hideous violence the the images of the vietnam war so the combination of you know the sound 
the extraordinary visuals with them all in white, um, the sort of dazzling performance, and then this 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 terrifying stuff which could have just come from the evening's news, actually, couldn't it? When you think uh -huh. about it, that's extraordinary potency in that little three-minute clip. I mean, it's it's uh, as the old song says, it's something else, and it marks the film out as very special. That kind of thing. I mean, there are bits in the film that, that you know, I think, oh, this is going to be over in a minute. And then we'll, you know, then the, the next good bit will come on. There are sort of boring little bits in it, I think. But, you know, it, it's one of those things where I always say to the students, well, if you, you know, if you're bored or you don't like this bit, don't worry, because it'll change into something entirely different, you know, about 90 seconds later. You know, and you might like that bit. So I, I think part of... Rafelson's kind of uh, aim in terms of that structure. People talk about the kind of the, the, the narcotic influence, don't they, on the structure of the movie, which I'm right. sure you know, there's something to that. I also think that Rafelson's framework, it's a bit like the hand, you know, do it with a channel changer. Yeah. You know, it's, the, it's, it's changing, it's changing, it's click, it's click, it's click. It's a, it's a bit like that. It's an observation of the... Um, you know, the quick change culture, I guess. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I find that footage of Circle Sky alone, to me, you could have written a book just about that, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. I show that to younger people, and especially people that don't really know anything about the monkeys. And I'm always <laughs> amazed by their reactions. I can understand why you would want to show this to your students, right? Yeah. It is mind-blowing because... One of the first things that I try to get people to realize is that that footage you see of someone getting shot in the head, that's real. Yeah. That's not fake. That's not something that was an afterthought. That's, that's not something that is something you can ignore. Yeah. And it takes a while for them to realize exactly how... Uh, it takes them a while to realize what they're actually seeing. When you mentioned it being news footage pretty much from the time, that was very true. Mm -hmm. And a lot of us were, at the time, we were still seeing black and white television programs, you know. So sure. it was it was very vivid in its use of the actual black and white footage. It, it really makes you understand that this is a real thing. This isn't... Mm -hmm. This isn't mm -hmm. uh, uh, something that's been put together for this. And there's a scene in that where the man is bargaining for his and his loved one's lives. Mm -hmm. It is one of the heaviest pieces of cinema that anyone could ever see. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, that, that's right. I mean, it's, you know, it's, 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 it's murder right up there on screen you know uh -huh. and and as you as you rightly say you know it, it's it, it's i mean that is why rafelson I, I don't know what you think about this ken actually but of course you'll know that at the moment that the murder is being shown on the uh -huh. screen yes the line is what you have seen you must believe yes if you can if you can mm -hmm. and it's you know the the, the marriage of that lyric to that image in some ways, it's absolutely right and absolutely perfect, but it's also—it's also—it's it, almost too awful. It is. You know, for, it's too for much a, to deal with. To, for us to say, "Oh, isn't that a good fit?" Do you know what I mean? 
Yeah. So you understand the point that's being made, but at the same time, you're thinking, well, it's it's actually too 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 terrible to contemplate a kind of statement or a, you know a, a, as an element in a, a, a piece of art. I, I always find that very troubling. That, that you know, I really admire it, but I also you know want to be sick. Yeah. It is it is the single most brave moment in all of rock documentaries and mm. films. Period. Yeah, totally agree. There is nothing that quite can match it. Mm. And thank God. Yes, <laughs> thank God. Thank God. Yeah. But it it is such a strong moment, and you know exactly what I'm talking about when I say about the man kind of bargaining for his life. You understand what yeah. I'm saying, right? You sure. Know, that yeah. exact moment, and he's yeah. he's trying to tell the soldier like i'll do whatever you want just you know it's so heavy it is so and i don't even think people realize what's going on at times no but no i mean if 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 somebody's seeing it for the first time they wouldn't know would they no they they wouldn't guess that you know in a moment this thing is going to happen just it's just too much yeah yeah it's 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 uh that's one of the features of the movie, isn't it? The, yeah, the, that, that's actually what it's intended to, to be. It's it, This is not supposed to be something that you just go, oh, well, isn't that nice? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. Well, well that was fun. Yeah, because it's not meant to be. Mm-hmm. Heavy stuff. Yeah, although, you know, there's it's it's not all like that by any means, is it? I mean, no. as you right to no. say, that is the, that is the kind of a, a moment of crisis in the movie. But, you know, a lot of it, is there's some great comic acting there's some very funny stuff very witty stuff something mickey said about the the tv series actually which kind of rings true for the film a little bit as well although we've been talking about topical stuff uh-huh. he said that the one of the reasons it was successful that it wasn't particularly topical you know it wasn't particularly making you know cracks about i don't know spyro agnew or somebody i don't know right you know that there was that it was it was childlike, not childish, but it's childlike in the sense that you know they—that's what we did. You know, we watched them sing and play, didn't we? As the as the as the theme tune invited us to mm-hmm. do. Absolutely. Um, and the movie's got some of that as well, of course. Well, let's pick another track to listen to. What do you want to? What would you like to listen to now? Well, when I was a kid and I first acquired the slightly scratched mono copy of the Head soundtrack album. The song I love most of all on it was Peter Talk's incendiary long title, Do I Have to Do This All Over Again? So maybe we could hear that. Take it away, monkeys.
we are back and we are monkeying around with author Peter Mills. What's the name of your book, sir? Uh, my book is called The Monkeys, Head and the Sixties. And we recommend it here highly at the Zilch headquarters. Uh, if you're listening to this show, you need to stop what you're doing right now and go buy this book. It is so good. And I particularly enjoy the Kindle version because I love the fact that you can click on any of the numbers that are besides and it'll take you right to where the reference comes from that you're that you're quoting that is a really nice feature that's great i can't claim any credit for that ken but, but yeah it's uh, it is a great feature yeah absolutely. absolutely what did you think of the differences between the monkey's tv show and the monkey's he head what did you think about the difference between the boys as the characters of davy jones michael nesmith Mickey Dolans and Peter Tork, and basically the TV versions versus mm. the movie versions? Well, it's a very interesting question, and it's something of a vexed issue, isn't it, mm -hmm. really? Because it's it's arguable that in the movie, this, this is another way in which the film is, is kind of um, exploring sort of terror incognita, sort of unprecedented areas. Mm -hmm. the, 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 the four monkeys sort of participating and um, kind of colluding in a deconstruction of their own public image and the kind of the revelation of themselves as the real Michael Nesmith or the real Peter Talk. It, you know, it's arguable that that kind of ebbs and flows in the movie, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, at one point they're all dressed as soldiers, they're in, they're in Bronson Canyon and, you know, when Peter's running, has his encounter with Ray Nitschke and stuff, gets mm -hmm. thrown against the wall... Peter wasn't really a soldier, so maybe that's not the real Peter. And then, you know, they're dandruff, and then they're in the vacuum cleaner, and so all these things. So we couldn't necessarily claim that the film kind of reveals directly or overtly the, you know, the real people or the reality of their characters. Because uh -huh. it, like the TV show, presents them in a series of sort of unlikely scrapes and escapades and mysteries that they have to resolve. So in some ways, the you know the, the the movie borrows some of those kind of ideas and some of that energy from the TV show, um, but also clearly, it's different. I mean, we see that right from the beginning, don't we? Where Mickey jumps off the bridge, um, you know, don't try this at home. You know, it's <laughs> um, an extraordinary scene. The opening sequence. It's the first kind of. 10 or 15 minutes, I'd say, of, of the movie are amongst my very favourite in the whole of cinema. But I especially love the, you know, the underwater sequence um, with the Paw Paw song and the mermaids and so on. But when you emerge out of that, you're in the pad, so people would have recognised, oh, yeah, yeah, this is the monkey's pad, the movie's going to start now. But then there's that sort of extended soul-kissing sequence, isn't they? Very sort of grown up. Mm -hmm. kind of relationships between the girl and the four monkeys very sort of sensuous which you don't get on the tv show right but then it always makes me laugh at the end of that you know she's kind of unimpressed isn't she she's just oh, even you know she's yeah. not that bothered whereas previously you know to a monkey fan the idea of you know being with them and being able to kiss them and stuff it's sort of a state of ecstatic oblivion um <laughs> but you know she's not bothered and she's off and refuses the invitation to come back later when the guys are here so you know i, I think they're the recognizable elements from 
the, the, the pace and speed of the TV series. But it's it's a kind of a more, you could say a more adult version or perhaps a more cynical version or just, I think I prefer a more purposeful version of that, that energy and that speed. Well, what's because sad the, is, you know, Mickey always talks about how on the TV show, uh, the, the guys never seem to win, right? They never yeah, yeah. make any yeah. money. So even when they're like in this hot sexual situation, they still get turned yeah. down. <laughs> Right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Apart from Davy, well, at least Davy, you know, the, it sort of triggers the, you know, the the romantic swelling serenade and the mm. window and the the lovey doves coming in yeah. and all this kind of stuff, which um, you know, obviously is like a skit, you know, on on his character in the show, mm-hmm. always getting the girl. Which one is it? Is it, is it monkeys? Monkeys in Mexico, a nice place to visit. Actually, it's called, isn't it? Yes. Um, where the girl, I can't remember her name in the episode, uh, says, oh, what does Davy mean? Asks, asking what his name means. Mm. And I think it's Mickey says, Davy means business, baby. <laughs> He's chatting her up. I always thought that was really funny. May I help you? Yes, you already have. Oh, true love strikes again. Baby don't, not this time. What's your name? Angelita. Angelita. That's a very pretty name. It means little angel. My name's David. What does David mean? David means business, baby. <laughs> so you can see, you know, how the series was developing, you know, those, those kind of those kind of dynamics, sort of, uh, it's kind of skitting its own conventions. Um, but yeah, you're absolutely right. The, um, the movie um, borrows some of those things but it also takes care to um, turn them on their heads often. Very much. So there is a connection. It's not like the, the movie has got nothing to do with the world that we were used to seeing these four guys in. Um, but that world has changed in all sorts of ways. Very much so. Yeah. It's a much more dark, sinister place. Yeah, yeah, it is. Absolutely. Where the, the manipulations that they you know, that they have to go along with, you know, come on guys, you're supposed to be dandruff, are more overt and, you know, they're they're pushed about, aren't they? And one of the things that I say in the book actually is is that one of the themes of the film is that they're they're under attack a lot of the time. Yeah. You know, in the war scene or the riot or, you know, that scene at the end, I think in the script it refers to it as the final battleground. Yeah. And you've got all the people who are out to get them, a kind of range round them, aren't they? Do you remember? Sort of on that ridge. Yeah. And they're just sort of isolated at the bottom. That they've, they've just got out of the box finally. And then all of a sudden, you know, the horses are charging at them and the arrows are going and, you know, even the immortal Coke machine has a one last go at them. Mm-hmm. So that that's one of the key themes of the film, you know, them them being sort of under attack. Right. Which I guess they, they had been, hadn't they, for all their success in the previous couple of years. At the same time, there was this kind of parallel narrative of them just being attacked all the time. You know, for, I don't know, for being fake or for mm-hmm. being this or for being that. Yeah, it seemed like all of entertainment was gunning for them, literally. Yeah. They, they wanted yeah. them to go away. Yeah. And, and, and one of my students actually uh, asked me and said, well, you know, why, why didn't people like this at the time? 
or you know why why were they always criticized and and now you know you're showing us this movie you know nearly 50 years later and it's fantastic i mean i didn't really have an answer but my kind of best guess was that in some ways the people who were you know in the business at that time or were editing the magazines or whatever it happened to be had a certain view of the monkeys and it wasn't until the people who were younger who were the monkeys audience kind of grew up and started teaching universities or writing books or radio stations or record companies or whatever and still loved the monkeys and understood them differently to the people who disliked them you know back in the day in the original era the kind of delayed reaction or the delayed response to film like head is partly to do with the fact that it is indisputably you know a long way ahead of its time right in the way we've spoken about but right. also that um people didn't have the opportunity to see it and then later on you know kind of dvds and all this kind of stuff the people loved them originally when they were kids like like us i guess we carry that forward and then we start talking about them and thinking about them in in ways which didn't necessarily happen you know in 1968 and 69 and so on mm-hmm. So I think I think interestingly enough, the the, the the monkeys audience definitely kind of grew up with them, and kind of rediscovered them. You know, it's it's kind of strange. We talk about the monkeys being like hated or loathed, and they were respected by many people, even within the the entertainment business. But uh-huh. the people at Mass were just kind of tired of them, right? You know, yeah. and and it it made their thing a joke like for example people might think well if they don't play their own instruments do you you know what i'm saying it it kind of revealed cracks in the whole entertainment thing but a lot of monkeys fans have a hard time wrapping their head around their beloved monkeys and the and the monkeys project being scoffed at or something that people mm. couldn't enjoy or, or absolutely refuse to enjoy more importantly yeah 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 that's that i think that's right it, it really is very comparable in modern times to justin bieber or mm-hmm. even how monkeys fans feel about the new monkeys in a sense yeah yeah you know just yeah, that's right won't even give it a chance you know you just shut it down i remember when justin bieber first came out Remember he had that like sort of 1966 Beatles hair going with the swoop kind of thing, right? Sure. Yeah, yeah. And I remember people on Facebook, you know, posting pictures of this poor kid, you know, and they're making fun of his hair. And it's like, no one's ever looked that stupid. What a horrible haircut. And I grabbed a picture of the Beatles arriving at an airport and just placed his head near theirs. And I'm like, yeah, no one's ever looked like that ever before. <laughs> Yeah. But in the same way that people look at Justin Bieber or in some cases the new monkeys, this is how the monkeys were kind of looked at by some people within the entertainment industry. So yeah. that's kind yeah. of what they had to fight against in a sense. Yeah. Uh, yes, absolutely right. I mean, uh, just just with the Justin Bieber thing, I was actually kind of reminded of, you know, those similarities. Justin Bieber's um, album Purpose mm-hmm. that was such a great record that um, my daughter had a copy and I would hear this stuff coming out of her room and I was thinking, that sounds good, what's that? And so it's Justin Bieber, so that's unusual. And then, you know, 10 minutes later, there'd be another one and I'd say, is that still Justin Bieber? I'd say, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
But the I don't know what it was like in America, but the British music magazines were really sort of gasping for breath, trying to work out how to deal with the fact that Justin Bieber had made a really great, innovative album <laughs> that was, you know, undeniably of, of you know, extremely high quality production right. performances with great songs, you know. Kind of similar to what the modern press is having to do with good times. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> no, it, it's it's a fact. And, I mean, I, I think that good times have succeeded where Just Us and Pooley arguably failed, mm-hmm. certainly in terms of, you know, kind of making a, you know, a big splash in terms of commercial success and people talking about it and so on. Precisely because the, the stated aim and the thing that they went for was to make a, a an album that sounded like a, a monkey's album, uh-huh. you know, that, that, that kind of observed lots of the rules, you know, so Boys and Heart are on there and everybody's got a vocal and certain elements and that you would recognize, you know, so it sounds, it sounds like what it is, you know, a real monkey's album, but made in the 21st century. You know, you couldn't have wished for something any more marvelous than 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 what we got with that record i don't think i think it's a, you know a fantastic success whichever way you look at it commercially creatively artistically and um in its understanding of what people liked about the monkeys it's uh-huh. entirely faithful to that very true very true when someone opens up your book what's the first thing they see <laughs> So there's a kind of little epigram in the book just just before the introduction and it's in white print on a black page which I didn't know they were going to do which was uh, excellent and it says this book is for those who look for meaning in form as they do fact which might be familiar um, <laughs> not not immediately familiar right even to people who have the album or, or the film because um, sometimes it's quite hard to you know catch the lyrics it's it's from ditty diego it's it's yes. one of the things that, that mike chants in ditty diego and it just seemed ditty diego i know that it, it's sort of infamous as a kind of merciless deconstruction of the of the monkey's theme and you know the monkey's project overall but it's also a kind of manifesto i always think of it as like a manifesto for the movie right you know like teeing up everything that happens in the movie in a sense and, it's the introduction to the film yeah, I think I think that's absolutely right. And you it's know, as much an when, introduction as the actual monkeys theme song is to the TV show. Yeah, yeah, I think you're bang on there, Ken. That's absolutely right. And that is sort of played out for us a little bit, isn't it, on screen? Because uh-huh. while we're hearing it in the movie, we're getting that brilliant little sequence where there's the little screens and the like, the mini TV screens which are all, almost like sort of DVD chapter-type headings, aren't they? Yes. And you've got the what I, I guess to take to be the, the kind of the, the key scenes in the film. So if you're looking for a way to understand the film systematically, well, how many scenes are there in it, you've got a little guide there. You know, if you're looking for a sort of a roadmap to the movie, uh-huh. that scene give, kind of gives you that, doesn't it? Yeah, and it's weird um, when 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 it's when it's going through that, like you said, it's each each one of those things. It looks like the menu of a DVD, it absolutely yeah. does. Yeah. So you know, while you're getting this this introduction, as you absolutely correctly say, to the movie, you're also getting like a little sneak peek, aren't you? Uh-huh. 
mm-hmm. because the first two or three screens are things we've already seen, you know, like the mermaids or the bridge or something. Um, but the great majority of them are, you know, still to come. And of course, we all know, don't we, that one of the another of the, the things about head is its circularity. It ends where it begins. Um, and, you know, that that is sort of intimated as well, isn't it? In the, the this sort of little roadmap, visual map that we get with the screens. I think it's a brilliant little device, actually, that. Um, I think it adds a lot to the film so that when you see these things later on, it's kind of familiar. You know, when you see Davy in the boxing ring, uh-huh. even if you didn't consciously register it, you've already seen that image. So somewhere in your mind, it's already kind of lodged there. It's a very, very clever little uh, device, I think. And uh... but, yeah, just to, to go back to the, the, the epigram, the lyric to Ditty Diego, you know, it does, as we say in England, really put the boot in to the monkey's public image. But there are also some kind of little philosophical elements to it as well. Uh-huh. And I always loved this line, um, you know, for those who look for meaning in form as they do fact, we might tell you one thing, but we'd only take it back. <laughs> um, you know, that idea that what you see might not be um, what you get, actually, or that it might disappear, you know, and again, that ties in with this idea of things permanently changing in the movie. Uh-huh. I mean, I, I think maybe that that's one of the kind of... Uh, it's almost like a little ghost of the film's original title, isn't it? Yes. It changes. You know, everything's changing all the time. How are you supposed to cope with it when things are just changing all the time? But, of course, the, the, the final sort of bleak joke of the film is that you end up back at the beginning. So there are all these changes. Yeah. But everything goes in a circle. Beginning. Yeah, so there's an internal logic, even though it seems like complete, you know, dream logic sort of chaos chaos logic it does actually deliver you back to the beginning at the end not only does your book document the early days and the monkeys live and the discography and the tv show but it also talks in depth about the movie head and there and after it talks mm-hmm. about how even discussing about how the band could have went on or things along those natures but it goes into 33 and a third and which is one of the most painful things in the world for me to watch personally but after that it talks about the rebirth and rhino and the importance of all that and you talk about how rhino saves the monkeys right yeah and it's weird now it seems like we're seeing that same kind of thing happening where rhino and mtv brought the monkeys back we're now seeing that happening with the film head itself in a different way like Mm -hmm. now we're seeing we have something in the states called turner classic movies they're showing this every couple months now oh really yeah so it you know before you had to spend money on the very expensive box set or settle for the crappy full frame version and in order to see it and now it is in beautiful high def restored pristine copy that's being aired along with hard days night on turner classic movies and things like that so when you deal with the people in your class who probably are for the most part not monkeys fans and they see head the film how many of them 
grow to appreciate the monkeys and, in fact, even maybe become fans? Well, it, it's very interesting because they don't have any preconceptions about the monkeys at all, the stuff we were talking about earlier on. Mm-hmm. They don't know the story. And so, you know, they, they have an advantage in that sense because they're, you know, they they don't have any previous information which is telling them to think this way about them or that way about them or to think they're great or think that, they, that you know, they're a dead loss or you know, anything. Uh-huh. It's new to them. Um, and, you know, my students are very interested in the history of popular culture. You know, that's one of the things that they're studying. So they're kind of open to things. Now, the film, what it always does is generates great discussion mm-hmm. okay because you'll get some who will will say oh it was terrible it was just somebody was stoned and they just wrote it down and that's what they did the somebody will say it's the greatest thing i've ever seen and here's why some the, it tends to kind of pan out that you'll get two or three who think it's the greatest thing they've ever seen and then absolutely turned on as they used to say to it and then you know they want to know more and then i can help them with that they're usually two or three you know who uh, kind of run screaming from the film theater while it's it's <laughs> it's playing um but the great majority of them um enjoy it and they want to know more about it and they're they're confused by it and i think that's a kind of a culturally rich response mm-hmm. you know who would not be confused and intrigued by seeing Head for the first time. Uh-huh. So the fact that it's you know airing every couple of months on a channel in the US is interesting and encouraging, but it also shows what the passage of time does. Uh-huh. It sort of collapses the differences and changes the nature of the distinctions between, for example, acts like the Beatles and the Monkeys. Uh-huh. There's a show on on the BBC radio show, Sunday afternoon show, called uh, Sound of the 70s. Sounds uh-huh. of the 70s. It's basically sort of an oldies show. Right. And it always strikes me as weird because it'll have a track by Free and it'll have a track by Tavares and it'll have a track by the Sex Pistols uh-huh. all together. And the only thing that they've got in common is that they were all issued in the 1970s. Yeah. So, you know, looking at it from our perspective, the perspective of 2017, you look back and the distinctions have, to some extent, disappeared. Uh-huh. You know, the the, uh, the musical revolutions of the mid-70s and so on. Um, it's not like they never happened, but all the music from that period just kind of gets packaged together and say, oh, there you go, that was the 1970s. And to some extent... Maybe that's some of some of the, the the strangeness that we recognize and that we love about head. Maybe some of that has um, been kind of appropriated into the the idea of what the 1960s were and that this was part of the the culture uh, of the 1960s. So it, it's kind of more acceptable in in some way. I don't know. I'm just kind of speculating in a way. Uh-huh. But it's interesting. It's interesting how a movie like Head has come in from the cold. You know, it was almost impossible to see. Its critical standing was less than zero, as Elvis Costello said. Uh-huh. And, you know, now it's it's a cult classic. I guess you could use that term about it, couldn't you? Absolutely. It's very definitely a cult classic, which is probably why um, 
the, the Turner channel, you know, sticks it on there because mm-hmm. it's kind of, you know, speaks to a certain kind of audience, certain kind of cineast element of their audience. Right. Because when Head was shown in the UK, certainly, I think it got its UK debut in 1977. It was a little art house cinema in um, Notting Hill in London. And then the next time it was shown was a, a decade later. Its second British showing was at the, the British Film Institute Theatre on the South Bank in London. Very prestigious as part of a season of sort of pop and rock movies. Mm-hmm. So when it was shown, it was shown in a sort of a, a highly aestheticised context. You know, it wasn't sort of trying to compete with the latest Clint Eastwood or Spaghetti Western or something. Mm-hmm. It was kind of in the art house context. And I was very I was very happy, actually, because a couple of years ago now, we uh, showed Head as part of the Leeds International Film Festival. I live in a city called Leeds in Yorkshire, north of England. And there's a great film festival here every autumn. And they usually have a music strand. And I was talking to the guy who sort of curates the festival. And it turned out he really liked Head as well. So he said, right, let's put it on. So that actually turned out to be the first time Head had been shown in Britain outside of London. Uh-huh. So I was very pre- pleased and a little bit proud about that, you know, kind of being part of uh, how that happened. But I think half a dozen times is the maximum that it's been shown in this country. Wow. So, you know, what you were saying about it being hard to see, to some extent, it's, it, it's still the case, certainly on the big screen. I mean, you know, you've got uh-huh. your DVDs, as you say, and... It's on TV and stuff, but actually in the cinema, it's still a, it's still a slippery customer trying to track it down. <laughs> hey, hey, we are the monkeys. You know we love to please. A manufactured image with no philosophies. We hope you like our story, although there isn't one. That is to say there's many. That way there is more fun. You've told us you like action and games of many kinds. You like to dance, we like to sing, so let's all lose our minds. We know it doesn't matter, because what you came to see is what we'd love to give you, and give it one, two, three. But it may come three, two, one, two, or jump from nine to five. And when you see the end in sight, the beginning may arrive. For those who look for meanings, inform as they do fact, we might tell you one thing, but we'd only take it back. Not back like in a box back, not back like in a race, not back so we can keep it, but back in time and space. You say we're manufactured. To that, we all agree. So make your choice and we'll rejoice in never being free. Hey, hey, we are the monkeys. We've said it all before. The money's in, we're made of tin, we're here to give you more. The money's in, we're made of tin, we're here to give you... Peter, it's really strange, but I feel that in a lot of ways, the movie Head really kind of knew where we were going as far as uh, pop culture and entertainment long before we realized it. And by that I mean, if you take a look at something as simple as Superman and Batman, for example. Yeah. Now, in 2016 and 17, it's very dark, grim, and gritty, right? Yeah. And the Archies, for example, I don't know if you've heard about the show Riverdale or not. No. It is the new take on the Archies. And mm-hmm. by that I mean it is a much darker Twin Peaks meets the Archie gangs. And mm-hmm. we'd like to send a shout out to Tim Powers who does a podcast called Hiram's Lodge, a Riverdale after show, and they break down the new take on the the Archies, like it or not, 
it's it's interesting we send a shout out to him but when you think about it the 60s monkeys was the tv show monkeys right yeah this head is almost like the darker version of the monkeys the cynical darker version that would fit fine in modern cinema in modern pop culture the, the, the monkeys that instead of trying to help uh, a guy keep his restaurant afloat, you know, Pop's Restaurant or the toy maker, they're, yeah. they're taking bets on someone committing suicide. Sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely right. So it, it really did kind of prophesy the darker tone that we've had in entertainment, be it comic books or music or movies. Yeah, this, this comes back to... Um, what we were saying about, you know, uh, the well-worn phrase, it being ahead of its time uh-huh. in that sense, but also that the speed at which the, the change happened, you uh-huh. know, a kind of kind of six months really, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, between the last episodes of the TV series and the film will have taken everybody by surprise. I mean, you look at the, you look at the, the, the day bill poster, the, the kind of the long narrow poster, and it has that, stamp on it doesn't it not uh-huh. suitable for children so that is a kind of a sign of exactly what you're talking about you know that there's this uh, you could call it cynical but i think it, it it's realer than that cynicism i was thinking it's, it's it's quite easily done it's even it's even quite sort of cheap actually so there are cynical moments in the the, the film but they're done to enlighten rather than mock the audience, uh-huh. I think, anyway. So, like, you know, the, the famous little moment where Annette Funicello gets the, the chemical in her eye that's going to make her cry. Uh-huh. That's, um, I don't believe that, you know, you could say, well, that's a very cynical thing because it's like saying, well, these emotions aren't real and so on. But it's also sort of equipping the audience with that knowledge, isn't it? You know, that, that kind of helps you understand what's going on in the film and to be able to maintain a kind of distinction between what's real and what's fake. You know, it, it's kind of good information, I think. Uh-huh. And I think Head is, 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 is full of that, that kind of good information that is quite startling and a bit shocking at first, but is actually trying to tell us something about the processes that we're subject to. You know, not a bit like Lennon's working class hero did, actually. Actually, yeah. A similar sort of wake up and you know this these are the processes this is what's actually happening it's not actually real you can enjoy it you can take pleasure from it but you also have to understand that it you know it's at some level it's fake the emotions might not be but the processes uh, can be and i guess that you know there's that like you were saying about the, the the darkness which has kind of crept in to popular culture i mean some of that will be to do with in in the case of head with jack nicholson's input uh-huh because he, he'd got that kind of uh, leery mischief right. uh, that he tends to bring to things. So I think that's that's probably part of it. But he was the man for the job in that particular case. Correct. I think, you know, the monkeys were ready to collude and to sort of cooperate with that kind of uh, shift in the way they were willing and able to represent themselves and, uh, you know, the, the subsequent change in how people perceived them. Because you're right, you know, when, when they're standing out on the lot and Peter's there in his uh, in his sheet and the beautiful June Fairchild is threatening to throw herself off the off the roof and 
they're just taking bets on it, aren't they? Yeah. You know, which it's it's kind of shocking, really. But then there's a kind of a goofball denouement to that, isn't there? Yeah. Where <laughs> she's there safely in his arms, and he's counting out the money. Yeah. <laughs> so you know, there's there's a there's a sort of a soft landing, if you like, for her. But you never would have seen that on the TV show. No, absolutely not. No, no. No, that's quite right. I personally want to thank you for writing a book that covers not only the monkeys in development up through to the TV show to the movie Head, but you also write about 33 and a third, Lizard sunning itself on a rock. Hello. Mm -hmm. This is a, I love your breakdown of it. And the interviews that you have at the end of the book are very informative as well. And like I said, it's it's just a fantastic thing. I've been trying to get you on Zilch for a while now, and things just hadn't worked out. But this is the time, this is the place, and if you are a Zilch listener within the sound of my voice, I recommend that you pick up this book. And the name of that book again is... The Monkey's Head and the Sixties. And Peter Mills, I'm telling you, I, I cannot recommend this book enough. It's If you have a monkey's bookshelf, if you have a monkey's book collection, it needs to be right in there along with Andrew Sandoval's work and our own beloved uh, Fred Velez and Melanie Mitchell. It is definitely welcome and... It, it's great to read this. It's part of the Monkey's Resurgence from 2016, and it's still going on, isn't it? It is, yeah. And I don't really see the reason that there's any reason for it to stop. I mean, you know, other than if the guys are tired or want to stop, but the reconnection with the audience that's come through the 50th anniversary and the brilliance of good times, you know, it really does, it does a heart good to see it. Well, I want to thank you for being on our podcast. Uh, you, you, you're classing up the joint. Have you checked out our show? Yes, I have. I'm I'm a listener, and I um, I've got a little file on my desktop with the previous podcasts in it, and it's uh, it's a real treat every time. Well, glad that you're part of our listenership then, and uh, we are we are all together in this. Well, thank you, Peter, for being on Zilch today, and uh, we look forward to seeing what else comes from your pen or your typewriter. All right, Ken, I'll keep you posted. That was a great interview, Melanie, wasn't it? Absolutely. And uh, I got to tell you how much I love that book. Yeah, please, because I haven't had a chance to read it yet. Oh, you have to. It gives a pretty long description of the entire project from beginning to end. But about two-thirds of the way through the history of the monkeys, I mean, he's got this really in-depth, careful scene by scene, moment by moment, interpretation and analysis of what was in the movie head. Oh my goodness. You know, what was on the screen, what was said, what it could have meant, how it all worked together. It's it's the most exhaustive analysis of head I've ever seen. And I really, 
really enjoyed reading it. It was quite, and you know, I didn't always agree with him, but then I don't expect people to agree with me. So it's, it's nice to have that conversation in your head where mm-hmm. you say, oh, that's one way of looking at it. But anyway, I really do recommend it. Uh, Peter Mills's book. Wonderful. I, I'm going to have to definitely check that out when I get a chance. And then I guess now would be a good time to sort of tell folks about the new episode that you and I are working on that will be coming out in the not too distant future. Well, we worked on a panel discussion about various appearances that various monkeys made on various other TV shows through the history, both before and after the uh, the monkeys. We basically uh, talked about a whole variety of different appearances that they made on shows like The Brady Bunch. And we also had an interview with an absolutely fascinating executive producer who was on the scene for one of these appearances. And he talks about what that was like. I won't give away any more of that conversation, but it was an absolutely entertaining talk that we had with him. And I'm really looking forward to sharing that with everybody soon, I hope. Yes, that interview was uh, supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. It certainly was. Yes. And it did not take a spoonful of sugar to make that interview go down. It was in the most delightful way. Oh, I like <laughs> these cookies. Oh, Sarah, are you okay? Uh, You're not looking so good. Those weren't oatmeal raisin. What were they? Not one of your standard flavors. Oh, dear. Um, uh... <laughs> Do you mind closing the show? I'm going to just lie here on the floor and be cool. Okay. Well, I think that's all the time we have for today on Zilch, and we'll catch you next time. Bye. Say goodbye, Sarah. The colors! The colors! And that's our show. Zilch is an online nonprofit monkeys audio fanzine made by fans for fans. Any samples of music or interviews heard remain property of their owners. We are not related to the monkeys or any of their members, past or present. We are not affiliated with Rhino or Ray Bird. If you hear anything you like from the band, go on Amazon or iTunes and buy it. If you enjoyed the show, like us on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Thank you for listening. Until next time, I'm your announcer, Chelsea Epstein, saying always take some time to monkey around. <laughs> Don't now. Now really, everybody cool it, because I won't be able to get through this. Action. Hey, wow. It's a groovy button. What does it say? Love is the ultimate trip. Oh, gee, that's a nice thought. Gee, that's a neat button. What does it say? <laughs> <laughs> Let's go again. <laughs> oh, boy. It all works It's out. not my natural forte. The colors! The colors! And that's our show. (laughs) (laughs) Much better. Okay, let me make sure we're rolling. We're rolling. Rolling, rolling, rolling. (laughs) One of the kinds of things that we really hope to do this next year on, you know, the Year of the Monkeys 2 Electric Boogaloo is... um, Oh, God, don't do that. That's my favorite (laughs) one! In the not-too-distant future. Where have I heard that before? Somewhere in time and space. La, la, la. <laughs> I got all my stuff from their Kickstarter the other week. I'm, I'm very happy about this. So. 